Good morning. Here we are, week four of God's Big Picture. It's been a while since I've been up here with you, but it's great to be back. I did say that I'd spend the first couple of weeks getting to know people, getting around to all the Bible studies, making sure that we do love Jesus. That is the goal of all of our activities here at church, to help those of us who are here and for those in our community to come to know Jesus and love him as we do. So a big thank you to everybody involved in Bible studies and other ministries over the last few weeks for putting up with me as I just kind of randomly pop in and say hello. It's been really good. But here we are, week four, and we're going to see this week how God's kingdom is partly, partially established. We're going to see how God has accomplished his saving work for a group of people in the Old Testament. Remember our pattern established in Genesis 1? God will have his people in his place under his rule and blessing. And today we're going to hear some amazing things, incredible things, things like a 90-year-old woman who gives birth, a slave who becomes a powerful ruler in a great superpower nation, and God appearing on top of a mountain with Moses. It's beginning to sound a bit like an episode of Top Gear almost. Tonight, Sarah has a baby. Joseph becomes a slave and then a ruler. God appears on a mountain to Moses, the murderer. But in all seriousness, we're going to see today how God is using all these events to establish his kingdom here on earth. So let's pray as we start. God in heaven... We thank you for your word and we ask that you help us to understand your plans and your purposes as revealed in the Bible. Thanks for your big picture of bringing your kingdom here to earth, having your people in your place living under your rule. We pray that we'll be challenged, strengthened and encouraged as we look at your word this morning. Amen. Well, as with all these weird and wonderful things that we've just talked about, you're going to see that there is a partial fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. Uh, remember God's promise, as we see in our next slide here. We're going to look at all the promises that God made to Abraham. Land, descendants, blessing. And we're expected at this point, this week, to say, how did they happen? How did God keep those promises? We're also remembering back to... Genesis chapter 3 verses 15 and we're remembering that promise that one day an offspring from the woman, another human, would crush the head of the serpent. And this week we're supposed to be asking ourselves, has God broken his promises? How is it that Israel at the end of Genesis really don't amount to much? They're kind of not really a superpower. They're not exactly blessing the whole world. They're really not much at all. Has God broken his promises? Well, not at all. Rather, he's using events in history and people and places in time. It's going to take some time, isn't it? He started off with just one man, Abraham, and told him he would be a great nation. Now, it's going to take some time to from one man to great nation, that doesn't happen overnight, considering how long these things do take. God has not forgotten. God has not broken his promises. Instead, God is using time and people in history to bring about his kingdom. So, 
here we are, long story short, we've covered the first 17 chapters of Genesis and now we're going to cover the rest of Genesis and pretty much all of Exodus. Strap in. Long story short, remember God's promise to Sarah and to Abraham and of course God keeps that promise. Baby Isaac is born in impossible circumstances. Uh, Sarah is 90 and has been infertile her whole life. It's a miracle that she would have a child at all. But God gives them this miracle. Isaac, who grows up and in time he gets married and he has kids. Not many, only two, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob kind of deceives his father and steals his older brother's inheritance and blessing. You can look at more of that in Genesis 25. Of course, Esau is rightfully angry. The older brother's just been robbed of everything that he once had. And Esau is mad. He wants to kill Jacob. Jacob escapes, flees to his other family over in another part of the world. Now, is it a great nation? No. Is it a people? Yeah, it is just a small number. It's really not amounting to much at all just yet. Until, of course, we see the next generation from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Jacob and his 12 sons. Each one becomes leader in a tribe and we see each one becomes the father of many people themselves. The point of this is that over time God has kept his promises. Abraham did eventually become the father of a great nation. All those things that God promised did in fact happen. The point of this is to see that God did not break his promises. Rather, he's used the events in history to bring about his plan for his people in his place under his rule and blessing. So the people that God chooses and uses are all chosen by God's grace. If you look at the kind of people that God has chosen throughout Genesis, these are not the kind of people that you would choose. If you were in charge of running some sort of important salvation mission, why on earth would you choose a really old guy with no children to be the father of many nations? It makes no sense. This is ridiculous. But by God's grace, he chooses and uses Abraham. The same thing is true of Isaac, the only son, the one and only child, legitimately fathered by Abraham. A great nation, you say? One, one child? That's it? Not exactly a great nation, is it? How is one kid going to bless the entire world? This is ridiculous. But God chooses and uses Isaac. The same thing with Jacob. Despite the fact that he deceives his older brother, he's kind of a jerk who steals what's rightfully his older brother's, but God chooses and uses him. It's by God's grace that all this comes. It's got nothing to do with anything that Abraham himself could do. He's 99 at the point when his son is born. How many 99-year-olds do you know having children? Not many. How many individual people do you think it could take to make up a great nation? Certainly more than one. And Jacob, the guy who's a real nasty piece of work and steals rightfully what belongs to his older brother, deceiving his father in the process and then running away bravely instead of facing his older brother's wrath. And Joseph, 
we're going to see as we come to his story, well, he's arrogant and he boasts to his brothers about how he has these dreams of how good he is and how they will bow down to him. It's no wonder they beat him up and threw him down a well. But I digress. The point is, God has saved all these people. He's using the most unlikely of characters. Why? Because it's not about them, it's about God. God is at work saving his people, choosing and using even the most unlikely of individuals. And you know what? It's the same for us too. We are saved by grace too. It's not about our own efforts. It is the same for us, just as it was for them. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we see that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. This is the pattern of God's salvation. The way that God saves a people, a chosen group, it's by grace. It was in the Old Testament and it is for us today. This is the pattern of God's salvation. It comes by grace, not by works, not by merit. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the rest of the Old Testament figures that we'll see, they added nothing. They could not add anything. They themselves were simply chosen and used by God to grow his kingdom, by his grace. Now, if we cast our minds back to the book of Genesis, I don't have time to cover everything that happens. There's quite a lot that goes on. But we eventually get to the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50. And as Jacob meets, sorry, as Joseph meets his brothers, what he says is incredible. He says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Now, remember, these same brothers are the ones that beat him up, threw him down a well and sold him into slavery. Now, that's evil. Um, even if he may have deserved it, it's not the right thing to do. You, you don't beat people up, throw them down the well and sell them into slavery. It, it's not on. But what he says is this, that even though they meant something evil, they meant to do him harm, God used those events for their good. Because the fact that they did that meant that he could be in Egypt and rise up through the ranks and be Pharaoh's right-hand man. In a sense, God is in complete control. He saves that family in keeping with his promises to Abraham. Why? Not because they deserve it. In fact, I'd go so far as to say they don't. In fact, they deserve the opposite from God. But that is where we get to at the end of Genesis. We've got Abraham's descendants somehow, some way, preserved, alive, not starving to death because of God's grace. At the end of the book of Genesis, we have God's people. Yes, the family of Abraham, all of his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are there in Egypt, plenty of food, all because of the way they treated Joseph. Now, if we're looking at the pattern of the kingdom, we should have God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now, what have we got so far? We've got maybe God's people. That's it. God's got some people. 
But are they in his land, the land that he promised to Abraham? No, they're in Egypt. Are they under his rule? No, not really. Are they somehow being blessed and blessing the rest of the nations of the earth? No. So we've got maybe a quarter. We've just got God's people. And that's going to take some time to see how God continues to bless these people and use them as we see our next book of the Bible, Exodus. And as we see in our next slide, the book of Exodus opens many hundreds of years later. At the end of Genesis 50, we turn the page to Exodus chapter 1, and it seems like these events are happening in quick succession. Simply turn the page and the next event takes place. But no, it's 400 years later. At the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is about a 400-year period. So you might ask the question, what has happened in God's plan of salvation? This grand plan of having his people in his place under his rule, how's that gone? What's changed in 400 years? Well, in terms of theological developments, not much. The Israelites have multiplied, like rabbits, I might add, but nothing much has changed. They're still just a group of people. Uh, They're certainly not in God's promised land because they're still in Egypt. They're not really under his rule. They're not being blessed and they're not being a blessing. So again, we're supposed to think, come on, God, what are you doing? Do something. That's what people should be thinking as Exodus opens. Come on, God, get to work. It's 400 years later. We should be thinking, when will God keep his promises? How will God keep his promises? It's been 400 years. Come on, God. And Exodus then begins to answer these questions. As we go through the book of Exodus, we can't stop. We've got to keep going. But we're going to start with the birth of Moses. Here he is, little baby in the basket. Remember that story? And we're thinking perhaps he will be the one who will be the saviour, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he will bring blessings to all the nations. It's going to be him, right? Spoiler alert, it's not. Nope, he isn't the one. He is not the guy that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Even though he will play an important part, we'll get to that, we're going to fast forward through some of the events of Moses' life to the Passover because we're going to remember what God did then. Now, for those of us who were here last term when we did Exodus, you would have covered some of this. So again, we're not going to stay here long, but God made a way for people to be saved. Remember, they're slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh and God has them kill a lamb, paint the doorposts with the blood because it's a substitute. And the idea is that God will kill every firstborn who doesn't have the blood on the doorpost, but he will pass over those houses that do have the blood on the door. We're going to see something important here. We saw in Genesis how God is saving his people by grace. In Exodus, we're seeing how God saves his people using a substitute. Look here at Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Remember how God gave them a substitute. If they will only listen to what God says... If only they will allow that lamb to die in their place, the angel of death will pass over their house 
and they will be saved. God has given them a substitute. The Passover is the way in which God's people go from being slaves to free. In order for them to leave Egypt, God has this great plan of salvation at work. And the Passover lamb, the substitute, is at the heart of that. So people leave Egypt bound for Mount Sinai to worship God. And this is what Moses asked Pharaoh for. Please let us go out into the wilderness to worship our God. Now this, as they get to this section, as they leave and they go out into the mountain, in the next slide we're going to see here what happens. They get the Ten Commandments. We've got a great movie about the Ten Commandments there, Charlton Heston being whatever it is that he does, acting really well like Moses. The people get to Mount Sinai and what happens? God gives them his law. So now we've got God's people saved out of slavery and they've been given his rule to live under. Now that's good. We're getting somewhere. We've now got God's people and God's rule. They're heading to God's land. They're heading to the place where they should be but they're not there yet. So Moses gets these tablets of stone that God himself wrote on, the Ten Commandments, and it's important to remember now why they get that. Why is it that God gives them the Ten Commandments at this point in time? Now remember the context. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God reminds them of why he's giving them his rule. That is because he saved them. Okay, Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's why I'm giving you my rule. That's why you've got the Ten Commandments. And it all points to the fact that salvation comes before they get the law. It would be different if, if God had have said to them, here's my law, here are my Ten Commandments, obey them perfectly, then I'll bring you out of Egypt. But he doesn't. He graciously brings them out of Egypt first, brings them to the mountain, and then gives them the law. And as we see in Exodus 20, that's the preface to the whole rest of the law. You are already God's people. God has already saved you. That is why you now live for him. And friends, it is the same for us today. Jesus has already saved us. His death on the cross was the once for all substitutionary death. He died in our place so that we could be free from slavery to sin. And now in response, we live in obedience to him. Not because we're hoping that by doing something we will be saved, rather having been saved already, we live for him. The same thing is spoken of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, as Paul writes this letter, he's teaching the people in that church, what do they do? Uh, get rid of sin. Uh, don't boast about it. Get rid of the yeast, the leaven that he speaks of. Get rid of that. Get rid of sin. Why? Because Jesus has already saved you. Get rid of sin, not so that God might one day save you. No, get rid of it because he already has. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's done. 
Our substitution has come. He has died in our place. And now we live in response. Jesus has been sacrificed and that is why we live for him. So here we are now in the middle of the book of Exodus. If we see on our next slide, we're a bit like Bon Jovi up there singing. Uh, We're halfway there living on a prayer. But the kingdom's still only halfway established, isn't it? If we look at what God's kingdom would look like according to the pattern, we've really only got his people under his rule. But even then, they're not really doing a very good job of it. You might remember the golden calf incident just after they get God's law. What do they do? God says, I've just saved you, now worship me. And Moses is gone for some time and they decide that they should build a a golden calf instead and worship that. So they're not really living under God's rule fully. Yes, they have it, but not completely. So, so far we've seen how God saves his people both through grace and through a substitution. And that is how he brings them to himself and saves them and gives them his rule to live by. But there's one more thing. In order for God to have a people, he's also saved them by conquest, as we see in our next slide. God's kingdom comes in part through what he does at the Red Sea. God's kingdom involves conquering his people's enemies. And time and time again, we see that throughout the Old Testament, but specifically at the point in the Exodus where they cross the sea. And then, of course, God parts the sea so that his people can walk across on dry ground. And then they, the Egyptians that follow all drown in the ocean. Now, just imagine how incredible it would be if God would do that for us, that God would conquer our greatest enemy, the very thing that threatens our existence, just as he did for Israel in Exodus. If you look here on the slide, look at who does all these actions. It's all God. It is God who does everything. The Lord drove the sea back. During the last night of the watch, who does it? It is God who's at work jamming the wheels of the chariots. It's God who then opens the sea and closes the sea. It is all God, all the time, saving his people. And it's true for us today. And that is why we are here. We have been saved by God defeating our greatest enemy too. But it's not a political kingdom. It's not a nation on earth, just as it was for the people in Exodus. But it is still true. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. Now you see, it sums up that whole teaching about how God has triumphed, conquered our enemies. Uh, while we were dead in sins and unable to do anything, because that's what dead people do, nothing, God made us alive. That's what the Bible tells us. And God is the one who's forgiven our sins. God is the one who cancelled the debt. God is the one who's provided us with a substitute. God is the one who has disarmed the authorities. God is the one who's at work throughout the whole plan of salvation. God has allowed Jesus to triumph over our enemies of Satan, sin and death like a mighty victorious warrior. God's kingdom is ultimately established by Jesus. God is the one who's at work through the whole process, saving a people for himself. 
It's hard to have a kingdom without people, isn't it? And this is what the whole of Genesis and Exodus is all about, how God saves his people so that they can live under his rule and blessing. And friends, it's the same for us here today. We are saved by Jesus. The way I think of the Old Testament is it's, it's a bit like a movie trailer. I remember when you go to the cinema and you watch before the main event, there's a few trailers that come on about what's coming soon and you get an idea of what the actual movie will be like. And the teaser trailer just shows you a few scenes so you know what to look forward to when you're watching the whole movie in future. That's what Genesis and Exodus are doing for us today. It's the partial kingdom. If we remember back to the slide earlier where there's only the two things that we have, we've got a people and we have God's rule, well, that's not in complete kingdom yet. Uh, it's coming in Christ. The partial kingdom should be the pointer, though, that points forward to Jesus. And for us, who have been saved by Jesus, we would see the sufficiency, the complete saving work that Jesus has accomplished. Uh, there's nothing for us to do. There's nothing that we could do. Jesus does it all. Jesus is the one who saves us by grace. Jesus is the one who dies in our place as our substitute. And it's Jesus who conquers Satan, sin and death and evil once and for all. It's all pointing to Jesus establishing God's kingdom perfectly. So as we get together on Sundays to praise Jesus and to take communion, what we're doing is recalling to mind everything that Jesus has done for us. Calling to mind that we are part of his kingdom, that he has saved us in the same way as he saved the people in the Old Testament. So as we prepare to take communion, let's pray and ask Jesus to strengthen our faith in him and thank him for all he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved us by grace. Thank you for Jesus, our Passover lamb. We pray, Lord, that we will give all glory and honour to him. Help us to appreciate everything that he has done for us. And Father, thank you that he's our substitute and our mighty conquering king. Help us, Lord, to be your people in your kingdom, living under your rule. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.